0: The last line of that song, To Love and Follow Him, is a perfect segue into the message from the Word of God this morning. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, one of our New Testament letters of the Apostle Paul, and as we are now venturing into our exposition, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, we're entering into a section where Paul begins a series of exhortations to holy living. That is to say, this is the the turn in Paul's letter from all that he has prepared them to hear and receive, and now the practicalities, the exhortations, the commands the summons to obedience begins in 1st Thessalonians if you were with us last lord's day you know that we spoke about the progressive and definitive sanctification of the believer that is the ongoing process of the believer's holiness and the believer's glorification and that was shown to us very clearly In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, listen to verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 through verse 13. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that, and here's the important part coming right before this section in chapter 4 beginning in verse 1 where the practicalities of obedience are listed, the commands of obedience, verse 13, so that or for the purpose that he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this whole section from the end of chapter 3 And now with the finally then, brothers, of chapter 4, verse 1, we're talking about holiness. Holiness. We're talking about progressive and ultimately definitive sanctification. Sanctification, if you're not familiar with the term, is just a a big word that means our holiness. And before we get into this exhortative section, which very honestly starts in verse 3 verse 3. Before we get there, I want to not just introduce this exhortative section, but I also want to show you why and specifically to whom we receive what is the title of our message this morning, Receiving Our Spiritual Marching Orders. Receiving Our Spiritual Marching Orders. Yes, these marching orders are going to come. And they're going to come beginning in verse 3. And it's interesting that as they come, they're going to be serious and sober and so very important for all believers of all the ages throughout the history of the Christian church. And we ought to listen to them and to know them and to love and follow Him, as the song said. But not just because it's your own opinion or mine. Not just because somebody back 20 centuries earlier said so. And the reason why I put it that way is because there is a gap between the authoritative person who commands such things and the commands themselves. We don't see the Apostle Paul around. We've never seen the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet here are these commands. In fact, look in your Bibles at First Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'll just show you the first command that we'll get to next time. Verses three to eight. And this is a very serious and sober command. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now we know that Paul's continuing to talk about sanctification because he uses that very word, right? I just read it to you in chapter three, verses ten to thirteen, when he says, blameless in holiness. That's another way of talking about sanctification. So it's all tied together. That's that's for sure. What's going on in this text? He says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother that is, brother or sister, in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, this is quite stunning for someone like Paul to arrange his letter and to begin with the so-called practical section of 1 Thessalonians, beginning here in chapter 4, with abstaining from sexual immorality. Why does he begin there? Why does he talk about love, beginning in verse 9, and why does he talk about eschatology or in things or the final age or the end of all things or Christ's coming uh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 4 and throughout the first part of chapter 5 and then why does he talk in verse 12 of chapter 5 about how we're to respond to, to leaders uh, over us and to esteem them and And then to rejoice always and to pray without ceasing and to give thanks to the Lord in all circumstances and and on and on it goes. All of these uh, hortatory statements, all of these commands, all of these uh, incentives to obedience. Now, why does he give all of them? And certainly, why does he give the first one regarding sexual immorality as he does? Well, I submit to you that he does these things because of what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. The sanctifying of the believer through commands like these, including this first one about sexual purity, has to be something that you and I would say is lasting truth and authoritative truth. That's binding Binding on all Christians from the 1st century to the 21st century and perhaps beyond. Why does he talk about sexual purity right out of the gate? Because he wants to know, he wants you to know how Christians ought to deal with and control their bodies, to know why and, and how the human body is best to operate as it does and as it must for maximum design and maximum obedience. And if we're to do that in the mix of a world that tells you everything but the Christian ethic, the Christian morality, then you've got to know not just what the commands are, you've got to know who's giving them. Because in a world like today, it's a free-for-all in terms of who's giving what commands or what exhortations or what advice or what mandate or what options or what philosophy or what ethic. It's a free-for-all. And I tell you, because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we need to hear from the commander-in-chief himself not your opinion, not my opinion, not anybody else's opinion for why we we should do, we must do what Paul commands us in these two chapters. I would venture to say, I would dare to say that the first two verses of 1 Thessalonians 4 means everything to the rest that follows. It means everything to the rest of these two chapters. Why? Because if you don't trust in your commander-in-chief, if you don't trust the one who's giving you your marching orders, then of course it's a free-for-all. Of course everybody can choose whatever ethic or lifestyle or decision, including sex, including love, including the afterlife, including the idea that in the afterlife, if you say Jesus is coming, I say, I don't believe that and I don't care. Why? Because I'm not receiving my marching orders from God, whoever you think God is, or Christ, whoever you think Christ is. In other words, the very reason why we ought to see these commands not just for what they are, but from whom they come means everything. It means everything. I mean, no wonder Paul says what he says in verses 1 and 2. He's, in a sense, setting us up to understand why we should follow these commands and and to whom we're accountable in following these commands. Because you can ask the question today, whom to follow? Who, Who should I receive my marching orders? Is my authority rooted in the culture around me? Is my authority rooted in myself and in my own thoughts, my own ideas of what's right and wrong? Is my authority invested in my intuition or maybe someone else's? Or philosophy, education, politics, government, power, wealth? In other words with the string of commands that will follow and will take us the next weeks and weeks to go through, by or under whose authority do I live my life? That's the key question, isn't it? I mean, before you start for yourself and for fellow Christians around you deciding how you will follow these marching orders, you've got to understand from whom you've received them. Now, of course, it may be easy for you and for me here in an evangelical local church to say, well, it's God, of course. It's God, of course. It's the Bible, of course. It's Christ, of course. Well, that may be very plain and obvious to you, but uh, go down the street and go into another church and you'll find probably something quite different. Uh, Go on news media, social media. And you'll probably find uh, a few voices out there for whom the authority is not God, the authority is not Christ, the authority is not the Bible, and therefore it is indeed a free-for-all in terms of who do you follow and what do you do, and please don't shove that Bible thing down my throat. That's, that's really what we're talking about here. When we get into this section of verses one and two, and whose authority do I follow, and then what those actual commands are in the rest of this New Testament letter. This is why this is so important. So if it's so important, let's read it. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Here it is. Here's the commander-in-chief. Here's the, the marching orders that, that I'm to receive, finally then, brothers, and of course that means brothers and sisters, we ask, we exhort, you could say, and urge or entreat you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Some of your translations may say, and excel still more. For you know, Paul says, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, he follows that with that first significant phrase, the beginning of verse 3, which we'll talk about next time, for this is the will of God. For this is the will of God. Now, as I've said, of course, the, the unbelieving world around us does not conform their lives to the standard of God's voice as given to us here in God's Word. Of course they don't. But for us as professing Christians, we are here given our marching orders for sanctification, for holiness, so that we might be blameless as we watch Jesus Christ return, and so that we might be encouraging each other as we minister alongside one another. This is how important this is and that's why I just couldn't get past verses one and two. I'm so sorry. I just couldn't get past it. I've got to know who my authority is. If I'm going to stake my life on certain commands, prohibitions, injunctions, principles in which to live my life, I've got to know who's giving them to me. I've got to know who is commanding me to obedience. Even as a Christian, I've got to know, and I've got to have the solid, cemented groundwork or basis behind which my obedience follows and my love to love and follow Him. So with that in mind, I want you to look at three very clear inferences, very clear inferences I'd like to even call them declarations by Paul about our true source of divine authority. In other words, if you and I want to know not how to follow these commands in chapters 4 and 5, but to whom we are obliged to follow such commands, they're given to us here in verses 1 and 2. And I'll give you the first one. Number one, our first clear declaration or a very obvious inference about what Paul is saying is our true source of authority is given to us in what I'm calling the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the first phrase of verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Oh, is that power packed. It's clearly inferred here. And I want you to notice that Paul makes an urgent appeal for the Thessalonians to do what they are both designed by God and are capable of doing when he gives those two words there. Do you see them? Ask and urge. Ask and urge. Now, ask sounds a little benign, doesn't it? I ask you to do something. That's why I think it's, it's probably better translated because of the intensifying, not only of the context, but the reality that Paul is talking from the regal authority of Jesus Christ, I urge you. I, I urge you. And you say, well, that's the second word there, urge. Yeah, well, that's that word for entreat. I entreat you and I urge you, I, I ask you to do something. And, and there we go. We're off to the races. Who says? I mean, can't you see your, your friends, your neighbors, the media, others, your college professor, your friends? And they say, who says? Who says I have to, to do this? Oh, that's just his opinion. Well, I don't believe that. That's That's not binding on me. Look, I'm one of those who's a take-it-or-leave-it proposition kind of guy. If I choose to do it, I choose to do it. If I don't choose to do it, I don't do it. It's all up to me. It's not up to anybody around me or over me. I say Paul says something quite differently. Notice what he says. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus perhaps even because of the particular word that's used there, in, with, or by. I I ask you, in the Lord Jesus, or by the Lord Jesus, by the authoritative word of the Lord Jesus, or with the full authority of the Lord Jesus, or perhaps even through. Through could be used there prepositionally. I ask and urge you, through the Lord Jesus. You know what Paul's doing here? He's not just, you know, this first phrase, you read this, and, and you're like me if you're, if you're a Bible reader and you're reading your Bible either through the year or, or perhaps you're reading 1 Thessalonians because we're studying through it, and, and you're reading so fast, you read it like this, finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask, you to urge, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, and then we just move right on to the hortatory section, the, the command section, the principle section, right, uh, sexual purity. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop, pause, think, ponder, consider. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, by the Lord Jesus, with the full authority of the Lord Jesus. This is incredibly important because this is the person from whom I receive my marching orders. That's how important this is. This is an incredibly important indication of whose marching orders they are. This is, this is why when you're reading in your Bibles, this is sort of an aside here, when you're reading in your Bibles, when, when you read these little phrases, in Christ or in the Lord or by the Lord's plan or purpose or will, don't, don't brush that aside all as though it's ho-hum. I read this all the time. It seems like the New Testament is filled with in Christ or do this for the Lord or by the Lord or in the Lord or through the Lord. You know, you might say it like this, the number of times something is mentioned like this probably means the opposite of what we might assume. Yeah, yeah, got that, move on, go to the meaty portions. Uh, Go to uh, what I'm supposed to do or not do. Instead I say, because of the oft-repeated nature of these things, that's probably actually emphasizing its level of importance. So every time you read something like that, I ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, stop and say, whose authority am I under? The Lord Jesus. Look over at chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. You want to see this authority perspective? I'll show you. This is the regal authority of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, right off the bat, right in the first verse of the first chapter, we're being told this is the church who are in God, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Christ. Oh, I tell you, there is so much theology in the prepositions. So much good can come out of these prepositions. So much authority is invested by way of these prepositions in God, in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Verse 8 for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. Think of that. The word of the Lord sounding forth. Not your word, not my word. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 10, Jesus, the end of verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's authoritative. He's in charge. That's why I say the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is king. King, I tell you. Lord of lords, king of kings. Paul doesn't use throwaway phrases. Don't don't skip the first part of a verse to get to the next part of the verse. This is telling us that Jesus Christ is alive and in charge. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. This is so very important. All these verses are signaling the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I read to you chapter 3, so that He may establish you, verse 13, your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. This is like uh, an epic theater moment that you and I are going to be presented before our watching God and Father and before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the theater of His glory. This is... This is why it's important for you and I not to miss whose authority is commanding us to sexual purity and love and to understand the second coming and to submit to our leaders and to pray and all of the other commands of these two chapters. That's why this is so very important. I mean, can you and I not see it? Is our world not sexually reckless to the hilt? and who's to say that when you and I talk to non-christians that we upon the basis of our pride or our arrogance or our boastfulness that they shouldn't be involved in such sexual sins just because you and I tell them not to is that is that going to be authoritative enough to them is that going to be enough for them to say oh i repent in dust and ashes I've been sexually sinning and I ought to stop right now. Tell me how to do it. Tell me, tell me what I can do to stop this, this sexually terrible exposure to all kinds of not only sexual diseases but dishonoring myself and those around me and the watching world needs to see something different from me, uh, help me, disciple me, talk to me, uh, let me figure out how to live rightly in this sexually crazed world upon whose authority? Are we saying such a thing? Do you think you go on your own authority? They're going to snap back at you and say, not what I just said, but something like this Who do you think you are? Who are you? That's just your opinion. And your response is, as a Christian, I follow my marching orders under the allegiance and command of the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, they're going to say, I don't. So, there you go. To which you and I say, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13 says that one day Jesus himself will come to this earth to judge the living and the dead, and in that regal authority, he will determine who were his true subjects. And, and part of the answer as to who his true subjects are, are the ones who are manifestly following his marching orders. Right? You, you want to you see some marching orders under the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ for preachers? I mean, we're talking about, you know, sexual sin here in the first section of First Thessalonians 4, and then he'll talk about love, and then he'll talk about the coming of the Lord, and then he'll talk about, you know esteeming your leaders and and then your own praying and rejoicing and giving thanks and all of these other things that'll come. But do you want to see the demand upon the preacher? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do you want to see the authoritative, and this is not inference, this is explicit declaration in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is what I am called to do, and so are you if you're following the Lord Jesus Christ and you're following the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ through the preacher. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Notice this. Notice the solemnity here. The sobriety here, I charge you, this is Paul to Timothy now, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word i.e., don't preach anything else but the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, implied Timothy, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And Paul then speaks about himself, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, at the time, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, that is, the crown which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Did you, did you read, did you hear the audience of the marching orders for preaching the word, here's the audience. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is this is the authoritative person telling the human person, the preacher, what his marching orders are. This is no option. This is what we're called upon to do as the Preacher, from the king, King Jesus, the regal authority. This is is how I'm setting you up now for these commands that are going to come. Sexual purity, love. As we go through these two chapters, this is the setup, my my friends. This is the setup. We have the regal, authoritative word of the Lord Jesus Christ when we are asked, demanded, urged, entreated in the Lord Jesus about something. So that's the regal authority. How about number two? Number two, let's call it the received authority of the apostles of Christ. Not merely or only the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, because the fact of the matter is, as I said before, you and I have not seen Christ by the eye. Now, we have by the eye of faith, haven't we? But not The physical eye. We've not seen Christ. And that's why it's so easy, I think, at times for people to say, Well, how can you say that you're following the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ when you've never seen him? That's why Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you what? You love him and you believe in him. Well, then somebody else is going to come along and say, Okay, but though you haven't seen him, This faith you're talking about, this belief you're talking about, though you have not seen Him, you love Him and believe in Him, that's coming out of your own mind. That's coming out of your own heart. You're just choosing to do that. But I'm not choosing to do that. I'm choosing to do something else. I'm choosing to follow Hare Krishna. I'm choosing to follow the the dictates of the Buddha. And, And on and on it could go. Name your religion name your philosophy, name your opinion, even name yourself as your own authoritative grid upon which what you will choose to do or not do. Is that not our world? Is that not what we do? Is that not what we see? And this is what's happening. Paul is setting them up, my friends. He's saying, look, I'm not going to give you these exhortations unless I tell you from whom they come. And they're coming from both the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he says, from us. Do You see it at the end of verse 1? That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Boy, isn't that loaded, how you ought to walk and please God. What a loaded phrase. You mean like all of my walk? Yes, all of your walk. You mean about pleasing God in totality? Yes, by pleasing God in totality. Yes, here it is. That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And I love that. I love that. You say, why do you love that? Because the Apostle Paul is not condemning them for actions of sin and a lack of response. He's actually commending them. Not condemning them, commending them. And, and this encourages me, because remember, these Thessalonians are in pagan Gentile territory, right? And they've been following a multiplicity of God's. And those gods are arbitrary and capricious, and, and, and they'll say, if you do this, then I'll bless you in this way, and if you do this, I'll bless you in this way. And some of those are even gods who are set up in terms of their sexuality, and, and they're having them do all kinds of sexually impure and lurid acts as pagan people And now Paul comes into town and he tells them, as does his ministry colleagues, no, it's not those multiplicity of gods. It's only the one God and the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is your king for which you must have your sexuality be a different course of action. Now, that's a hard sell, my friends. That's a hard sell. You mean to tell me what I've been involved with and what I've been taught and what I do is not right? It's not honoring, it's not godly, it's not holy. And Paul says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I'm telling you by the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must conduct yourself sexually in ways that your pagan, lurid, Gentile past suggests otherwise. Now, my friends, how does one become transformed How does holiness come into the life of a non-Christian and changes the entirety of his or her life? I tell you, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel. And it's these exhortations and the authoritative commander-in-chief who's giving such exhortations. And because of this, the Bible is telling us here so very clearly that they got the message They got the message, and the Holy Spirit came into their life, and and the gospel is so transforming them that they are saying, I don't care what I was doing sexually before. Here's the right way to live, and I'm doing this, and Paul says, I commend you, and the only thing I'm telling you is to excel still more in what you're doing to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not encouraging? I tell you it's encouraging in two ways. Number one, This is the new Christian ethic, and it's the only way to live, and it's the only way to be God-blessed. And secondly, he's telling them what is obviously, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes these words, he's telling them what is obviously true about them, which means change can happen. Change can happen. You ever been in a counseling situation as a Christian friend to another, and, and they are abject, fearful, that person you're sitting across from, that they can't change? Someone who says, I've been living a a homosexual lifestyle, and I, I can't change. It's a part of me. It's inbred within me. I don't have the capacity or the power, or so it seems to me to change. And if you say to them, have you been changed by the power of the living, risen Christ? Yes, I have. Then here's your answer. You can change you can change by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Word of God. And when in fact they begin from the discipleship that you give them to know the authoritative, the regal authoritative Word of Jesus Christ in the text of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8 about the sexual purity that they are supposed to manifest, and when they get a hold of the real understanding of this passage and others, and they begin to apply such a passage, then change occurs. It can happen. And it's happening to them because Paul says, you've been walking and pleasing God in this area of sexual purity and I'm only asking that you do so more and more. What an encouragement. We can change. We can be different people than the way we were. How liberating is that? And it can happen. But you say, okay, help me with the authorization thing. Help me with that. Because in the sexual area particularly, I don't know. How many times I've tried to change. And I don't know how many times I've failed. Please help me. Help is there, my friend. And it's contained, believe it or not, in that phrase, that as you received from us. You say, give me a little bit more help than that. That, as you received from us, that's the help. Help. Here it is. The regal authority of Jesus Christ, God, and human flesh, is now being passed down to the authoritative Paul. The authoritative Paul. And Paul, under the design and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing down words in a letter to the Thessalonians that Paul believes will help them excel still more and more. You say, well, that's that's clearly an inference from the text. Because did you get all of that out of that as you receive from us? How to walk and please God? That, that's what you're getting out of there? Let me explain something to you. Do you see that word received there? You received from us? This is most interesting. That is... That is actually, my friends, either a bona fide technical phrase or a semi technical phrase, the word received, that means that we are receiving from Christ through Paul in this letter God's way of telling us how to live the sexual ethic, how to love, how to understand the second coming, how to pray how to esteem our leaders. This is is a very interesting way of talking when Paul says, what you receive from us. And remember I told you, if you just sort of move yourself away from that verse to get into the guts of the passage, you err because remember, this receiving means something, right? Every word of God is pure. It means something in the text. And the very word received means something like this, to pass down. Tradition. A good deposit to deliver, to pass on. You say, You've got to show me that. Okay, look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is so important, my friends. Don't tune me out. Just listen. I'm making a case here, and the case is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says this. Now I commend you, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians. Now I commend you because. You remember me in everything and maintain the what? What does it say there? Traditions. Traditions. Even as I delivered them to you. Traditions. Oh, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting word, isn't it? Because, in a sense, we might have been brought up even as Christians to think that traditions might be a bad thing. And in many ways and in many contexts, even with religions, tradition is a bad thing. Remember Jesus actually said to the scribes and Pharisees, why do you subvert the Word of God for the sake of your traditions? But I'm telling you, Paul uses traditions or this word delivered as I delivered them to you, or as what you received, talking about the one who's receiving the deliverance of the information. These are power-packed words that actually have become so technical in the New Testament that it's talking about the written revelation of Scripture, traditions, the Word of God. This is what's been passed down. This is what's been passed on. This is, this is the good deposit. This is the content of truth. This is instruction. See, all of that is freighted in this word, which is to say that Paul is a bona fide apostolic authority derived from the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You said, now, I agree with that. I agree, Paul's a Bible writer. I believe Paul's authoritative. Well, guess what? The liberal and the moderate branch of Christianity does not think so. In fact, I remember even here at Bethany Bible Church having a small men's discussion where we were going through Andy Davis's book, Revitalize, How to Revitalize Your Local Church. And he gives the example of being the new pastor at his church, the one he's currently pastoring now for 30 years. And he says to this this new people as the new pastor of the church, now I want you to know, and then he taught on a subject and somebody raised their hand and said, I don't give a flip what Paul thinks, just tell me what Jesus says. That's, that's in his book, Revitalized. That's, that's one of the examples he's giving where he says, okay, I'm going to have to back up about uh, six or eight steps here and try to let them know that Jesus and Paul are not in conflict with one another. Do you know that you've been so blessed in your teaching that when I say Paul says or when I say Jesus says, you're not thinking about automatic contradiction, or maybe Jesus was right on this and Paul was wrong on this. You're saying, I believe Paul has his derived authority from the regal authority of Jesus Christ himself, the very God-man, the very God incarnate that we love and obey, and I believe Paul is his servant, so if Paul says, I got this from Jesus, that's good enough for me. Some people don't believe that even professing Christians, and certainly the world doesn't believe this. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter 11 says what it says, you know, this tradition that I'm delivering to you, which of course is Holy Scripture and perhaps even more pointedly the gospel. Chapter 15 does talk about the gospel. Look at chapter 15, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you, what? received. You, you see, that's that freighted word there, received, in which you stand. In other words, I am preaching to you so that you would receive what I myself have already received from the Lord Jesus. And here's another, look at 2 Thessalonians, right in our own First and Second Thessalonians that we're studying, verse by verse, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And watch this now, verse 15, mark it down. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Notice this now. He he covers the bases either by our spoken word or our letter. Oh, my. Now, that's... That's the authoritative Paul with such derived or delegated authority from Jesus who says, I'm telling you, you had best stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And you know what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about? Paul says, I told you these things beforehand and now I'm writing them to you both bases are covered my friends when you read this in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1 that as you received from us how to walk and please god don't quickly overlook what that reception really means the apostle paul is speaking under the derived delegated authority the regal authority of jesus christ look at 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3 Verse 6, this is so very important. Be encouraged about this authority, my friends. Now we command you, chapter 3, verse 6 of Second Thessalonians, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, there it is, that regal authority of Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And there you have the word tradition and the word received. See it there? No wonder theologians believe that this word, this group of words, this concept is becoming technical in the New Testament to talk about the verbal and written authority of the apostles of Jesus Christ. I'll even even show it to you at the end of 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord, the regal authority of the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers. Oh, my friends, if I were to stand up here and tell you that I have written a letter to you and I say you must read my letter. This is Lance Quinn talking. This is Lance Quinn talking about something that isn't scripture. This is Lance Quinn talking to you about something that I don't have the authority to adjure you to read. But I say to you, I put you under oath before the Lord to read my letter. And you'd say, I think we should dismiss him. I think he's off his rocker. I think he's done. Because he does not have that authority. And I tell you, you'd be right. So then how does Paul get off saying about himself and his letter, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers? Because he's under derived, delegated authority from the Lord Jesus Christ to say so and to write to them and say, you are under an oath, and obligatory oath to read this letter. Oh, my. And, frankly, he even talks in the next epistle, 2 Thessalonians, about this is how I write. This this is my marker. This will show you the authenticity, the the genuineness that this is Paul's letter. Because, of course, there were spurious letters going all around, right? This is the letter from Thomas. This is... This is the gospel of so-and-so. I urge you to read such a letter. That was happening in the first century, and the 7th, and the 12th, and the 18th, and the 21st. There are people all the time. You go into Barnes & Noble, and you go to the religious section, as I do about every other day, and you go in there, and you say, I'm going to find out what Christians are reading. That's why I go in there. I find out what Christians are reading, professing Christians said to be Christians. And, and I look on the shelves, and I'm seeing all these shelves, the Gnostic Gospels, uh, the mysterious Gospels that were left out of the Gospels, and letters from angels. And people scarf those book ups, books up like, like nobody's business, and they begin reading these things, and they're so confused. No wonder they're confused, because those are inauthentic, non-genuine books that aren't the Word of God try to tell them it isn't the Word of God, and try to show them why it isn't the Word of God. That's why I'm arming you today, before we get into this sexual ethic and beyond in these two chapters, that what we're talking about is, in fact, the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the received authority of the apostles of Christ, which takes us into our third and final of the morning, and that is the recollected or recollected authority of the Christian Scriptures the recollected authority of the Christian Scriptures. You say, why did you say recollected, different nuance of that term, and recollected? Because I think it's actually both. It's actually both. You say, what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. Paul has already verbally spoken to the Thessalonians, right? He's already verbalized all of this teaching. That's why he keeps saying, What I told you beforehand, what you already know, what I've already taught you, that means that verbally, physically, he was standing in their presence and he was teaching them. From Paul's mouth to their ears, right? And now he's writing a letter, which means that he's recollecting for them what he taught them and what they're now receiving in letter format, And they don't have to worry at all about Paul's memory. Why? Because his memory is taken up by the inspiring word of the very Holy Spirit to ensure that what Paul writes is exactly what he told them before. Which means that what he told them verbally and what has now been given to them is the authoritative, regal authority of Jesus Christ in the purpose and plan of God through Paul's pen. Which means, not for these Thessalonians in the first century, but for you and me in the 21st century, because I didn't hear Paul tell me this verbally. And I wasn't even there when it was read in the fellowship. And I tell you, the biggest inference for us is this. Look at verse 2, the latter part of it. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Some of your translations may have the word commands. You say, what are you talking about? For you know what instructions? Instructions commands. Paul told them by his mouth, and he's told them by his pen. And how do we know them? By this letter. By this letter. It's in this book. And this book is what we call the 66 books of the Bible, the canons of the Old and New Testament, the Holy Christian Scriptures. And we have them. We have them right here. Do you imagine what might be fraught with potential error and misunderstanding if for the next 20 centuries the Christian preachers would have to say something like this, and I'm recollecting what Paul taught and God has commanded me to tell you and you must follow what I'm saying because that's what's what Paul is saying because that's what Jesus is saying and all you're hearing about that is my verbal recollection of such things. And for 20 centuries, don't you think that there would be a real possibility that some could say, you think he's gotten that right? Do you think he's telling us exactly what Paul said? Do you presume that that's precisely what Jesus taught Paul? to tell this preacher, to tell that preacher, to tell me? Could there have been some error creeping in to the process of getting 20 centuries down now to us? Do you see how that would tend to kick against the authenticity, not only the clarity and perhaps even the authority of these words? God's left nothing nothing to chance, my friends. Nothing to chance. From Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul to the written Scriptures for the posterity of the church. These instructions. For you know what instructions we gave you, and then notice this, through the Lord Jesus. There's that authority again. And Paul is writing them. He's writing them. And in the providence of God, the writings of the Apostle Paul, to say nothing of the other books of the New Testament, to say nothing of the preservation and perpetuity of the Old Testament Scriptures, we have the authoritative Word of God in this book. We have it. No need to worry. No need to be concerned Now it is ours to study such a book, to learn such a book, and its instructions, because these instructions, these commandments, they're not just for the Thessalonians, they're for us. They're for us. Bethany Bible Church, the same Scripture, the same letter that was read to that church in their hearing is the same letter that you and I are hearing. What a marvelous, providential God we serve, who leaves nothing to chance, and who gives us the written revelation of the Apostle Paul, who derived it from the authority, the regal authority of Jesus Christ Himself. Does that give you confidence in the Word of God? And does that give you confidence in the authority of the Word of God? So that, for instance, as we close, when Paul says, I want to tell you, because some of you are troubled, about what happens to Christians when they die. And that's a part of these two chapters. End of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. And he says something like this, I want you now to understand that when a Christian dies, their soul goes to be with the Lord, and their bodies go into the grave, and when Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be a joining of the saints of God so that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we'll always be with the Lord. And then he says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage one another with these words. That's an exhortation. That's a command. I'm telling you that your dead loved ones who are Christians will rise first in the resurrection. And I want you to do this. I've told you the truth, and now I'm telling you how to obey the truth. And here's here's the obedience to the truth. Comfort one another in these words. Encourage one another in these words. And he says it again in chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing you see how important this is? I got this from Jesus. I'm telling you as Paul, and now you and I have the recollection, the recollection of the very authority of the holy Christian scriptures whereby we can be encouraged about our dead loved ones, that they're going to be with the Lord. Their souls are going to be with the Lord immediately upon their death, and their bodies will rise first in the resurrection to glory. Boy, that's a great encouragement to me. Is that a great encouragement to you? And it comes to us from the Holy Scriptures. I could not stand up here and say any such thing about anything by my own authority and try to get you to believe it, let alone live by it. But you and I have the regal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the received authority of the apostles of Christ. And we have the recollection in the holy scriptures, the very scriptures of God through Christ by way of Paul's pen. Isn't isn't this glorious? There's not one thing our gracious God has forgotten. He's got it all wired. Which means we best read the scriptures because I'm not hearing Paul's words from his lips. I've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ by the physical eyes that God has created me to see through. I don't have those, but I have the written Scripture, and that's why I want to be front and center for every Lord's Day preaching of the Word of God so that I can know how to encourage one another. Amen and amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Shouldn't we be just like, as we've heard the message today, the Apostle Paul as he spoke to the Corinthians, and this is what he told them in chapter 3, he told the whole church these words, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Oh, how we need the Word of Christ through the pen of Paul and the other Bible writers so that we might know the Holy Scriptures and the authoritative force for which they encourage us to love and follow the instructions of God. May we do so for His glory, for the sake of Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit's witness through the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.